So this morning, we're considering the matter of providence opening the prison. And we're going to see, after our introduction, Pharaoh's consternation that no one could interpret his dreams, the butler's revelation of an incident that took place that he should have remembered, but he forgot, and then Pharaoh's notification of the officials down at the prison, and finally Joseph's interpretation and recommendation with regard to the dream that Pharaoh has had. And today we come once again to another encouraging account of the providence of God. Providence is simply God working His will in the world. The Westminster Shorter Catechism gives a further definition. God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all His creatures and all their action. The emphasis would be on the governing God guides all things to his desired end. God's sovereignty, the fact that he rules over everything, is expressed through his providence. And yes, God does use means, and that would be you and I. We are not just waiting to see what God does out of heaven. We are a part of what he is doing as he has commanded us to do in Scripture. You can remember when the Apostle Paul was preaching in Corinth. One night the Lord spoke to him in a vision. He said, don't be afraid. Keep on preaching. I have many people in this city. And the means of reaching those people that they might come to Christ and know the gospel would be Paul's preaching. So Paul continued to preach and we continue to preach and disciple and pray and do all the things that God has commanded us to do. Now, a question concerning the winding course of God's providence in our lives. How can we be assured of the certainty of its outcome? God tells us he has a plan for us, a plan for welfare, not for calamity. He tells us all things are going to work together for good. Uh, Joseph is going to encourage us in that, that his brothers meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But how can we know that it's really going to work out that way. Because we all see times in our lives when it doesn't look like it's working out for good. And what about God's frowning providence, as William Cowper described it? Bernard Gilpin of England, living in the 1500s, was known as the Apostle of the North. And toward the end of the reign of Bloody Mary, Gilpin was arrested as a suspected Protestant heretic. So as he was being taken to London to be burned at the stake, he fell off his horse and broke his leg. And the person in whose custody he found himself began to revile him because Gilpin always was saying that nothing happens to us but what is intended for God's good. So he asked if he thought the accident was going to be intended for his good. In those days, a broken leg could be a pretty serious thing. Gilpin answered he had no doubt that it was. And so it proved to be in a very literal sense. Because before he could travel again, Queen Mary died and he was set at liberty. And that's the way God's providence often works. Something happens that doesn't look too good to us at the time, 
But then we see how God is working that for a greater good. Well, the answer is we walk by faith. We are assured of God's providence by faith. Exercise all the faith you can right now. Share the gospel with every unbeliever you can and pray to beat the band because when you get to heaven, you won't be doing any of those things. In heaven, it'll be sight, not faith. And there won't be any unbelievers there to share the gospel with and you won't need to ask for anything because you'll have it all. So get it all done now. We're assured of God's providence by faith Faith in the testimony of Scripture and the God who inspired it. Scripture tells us that we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to God's purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. And then, as we have seen in first light this morning, we can find faith in the testimony of the lives of other Christians. What I'm talking about is we can see how they trusted God and how that worked out for them. And then that gives us courage that we can trust God too and see how it's going to work out for us, for our good and for God's glory. Acts 17.28, Paul says at Mars Hill, For in Him we live and move and have our being. Job 12.10, In His hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. And Daniel 5.23, God holds your breath in His hand and owns all your ways. He knows when a hair of your head is lost, when a sparrow falls out of the nest, He knows everything that is going to happen. And all the contingencies of things that could have happened if it took place in another way. Sometimes we are concerned about those things because we don't know all that. And then faith in the testimony of our own lives. You have seen God's providence in your life. Yvonne and I have seen God's providence in our lives. I would have never guessed I would be standing up in a church uh, giving a message uh, some years ago, but here we are in God's providence. And there's one thing to remember about God's providence, several things. But one thing is it's important that you write it down. Because if you don't, you may forget it, as we see in our lesson today on the part of the butler. So that's a good thing. When God does these things in our lives, we need to take note of it, write it down, rehearse it to ourselves and to our children and give God the praise and glory, even as Joseph does and others in Scripture. God's providence is usually hidden until it happens. That's the tough part. When we can't see what's coming down the road of the future, and we wonder about it, and it looks ominous. God's providence is usually hidden until it happens. But that's the reason we walk by faith not by sight. So today's lesson brings up an important question. What if you've been delighting in the Lord and doing good, and all of a sudden you find yourself demoted to the bottom of the barrel? What then? That's what happened in Joseph's life. 
What about when providence begins to look like punishment? You have two options. You can either get better or you can get bitter. Meaning that you can trust the Lord for what He is doing in your life or you can begin to rebel against that in your heart and pretty soon that may be open rebellion. We're studying a young man, Joseph, who got a lot better in God's training program. God was obviously putting him in situations where he was going to learn some things about the Egyptian culture, but also he was going to learn patience, he was going to learn perseverance for later on when there would be a lot of hungry people coming to him wanting something to eat. So God has these training programs for us, and when it comes to building character, God is never in a hurry. Chapter 40, last week we saw some things. Dr. Benjamin Poe summarizes some of these things. We saw two prisoners from the palace coming down to the prison. We saw two ominous dreams that resulted in a sad countenance for each of the prisoners. That's how Joseph knew they had been dreaming something. We saw two specific interpretations, and we saw two opposite outcomes for the butler and the baker. And we saw two discouraging disappointments. The chief butler, uh, excuse me, the chief baker who was executed, and then Joseph who was forgotten by the butler who went back to his job in the palace. So here's some things we could learn from Joseph's experience in prison, which is coming to an end today. First, the goodness of God gives us hope in hopeless times. Two top-ranking officials, servants, they're called, from the palace, suddenly showed up in prison the one in which the king's prisoners were kept, the same one in which Joseph had found favor in the eyes of the chief jailer, who likely answered to Potiphar, who was the captain of the guard, and who I think might have begun to suspect the treachery of his wife in her dealings with Joseph. So again, Joseph is given an opportunity. He is able to converse with the butler and the baker, And through his conversation, he's learning more about the propriety and protocol down at the palace where he's headed. He didn't know that, but God knew that, so God gives him an opportunity. It's hidden. God's providence is usually unscrutable until the time when he pulls back the curtain on a new scene and we can see what's happening. John Calvin put it this way. When God might have delivered the holy man directly from prison, he chose to lead him around by circuitous paths, the better to prove his patience, and to manifest by the mode of his deliverance that he has a wonderful method of working hidden from our view. He does this that we may learn not to measure by our own sense the salvation which he has promised us, but that we may suffer ourselves to be turned hither and thither by his hand, until he shall have performed his work. That's pretty good. God often opens a door leading to the next phase of his plan. The two top-ranking servants have dreams that trouble them, 
and God is going to use their dreams. Now, when you see an open door before you in life, you don't want to just rush through the door. It might be some kind of test. You want to be sure that you're prayed up, that you're seeking the Lord, that you're in the Scripture, that you're getting some wise counsel before you go running through the door. But we're going to see here that what looked like a door didn't turn out to be so. Because when one of these guys was going back to the palace, Joseph thought he had an opportunity. But the guy forgot about him. Number three, God's grace brings the power and motivation to do His will. In this case, God's grace equipped Joseph to interpret dreams for everybody. But there was a test. Uh, Joseph told the butler, when you get back to the palace now, remember me, I've been put here unjustly. But the guy lets him down. He just forgot all about it. Don't pin your hopes on people. They may forget all about you, but God never will. And don't pin your hopes on dreams. God can work through dreams, but we have the Holy Spirit. It came in, at Pentecost. Uh, we have a completed Scripture. We have wise counsel available based on Scripture. So be careful about uh, pinning your hopes on dreams. My hope is that you can see that God is the main actor in this drama. It's not Joseph or Potiphar or Potiphar's wife or Pharaoh or the butler or the baker or any of those guys. It's God, and He is working through all of their lives. God fulfills His own purposes in His own time. And His time may be sooner, or His time may be later. In this case, His time has been later, because it's been 13 years since Joseph's brothers have sold him to slavery, and he's been in prison now for two full years. We read in the text. God is doing it. Psalm 115.3, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. And a decision that some man makes down on the earth can't change what God is doing. God will be working through that decision, good or bad, that the man didn't even know about. Psalm 135.6, The Lord does whatever pleases Him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. Now, isn't it encouraging that we have a gracious, a merciful, loving God when we read about God doing whatever He pleases? Psalm 33.11, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart to all generations. Well, Pharaoh has a problem. At the end of the time that we're coming to of Joseph's imprisonment, God begins to unfold the next step of his divine providential plan. Now, his plan is to get the entire family from up in Canaan down to Egypt so that they can grow from a family, a large family, into a large nation known as the nation of Israel. And he wants them to be protected from outside interference while they're growing into the nation. 
So he brings them later, we'll see, down to Egypt where Joseph is a big man in Egypt. And they find favor with the Pharaoh and everything goes well for about 400 years. You know the story. Calvin again notes that Pharaoh's anxiety leads, lends authenticity to the dreams that he had. There's something ominous about those uh, lean, gaunt, carnivorous cows gobbling up the good cows. And Pharaoh is really troubled about that. And the reason is God wanted him to be troubled, and he had a purpose in that. Pharaoh called all the magicians and the wise men of Egypt to interpret the dreams, but no one could interpret them. I would have thought that Pharaoh's trick boys would have given him some kind of open-ended interpretation that maybe they could get away with because that was their job. That's what they were supposed to do. Probably they made their interpretations of things through the occult, by the power of Satan. And in that case, in this case, their mouths and their minds were closed. Nobody offered any suggestions as to the interpretation of the dream. Because this was God's dream. And God knew that he was going to have his man interpreting the dream. And at the same time, God was going to get his man in position to get the rest of the family down to Egypt and find great favor in the eyes of the Pharaoh. So with all of that, apprehension has really gripped the king. He was troubled the next day when he awakened. God is preparing him to listen to the truth. If you read the Bible, do you know what you see there? People won't listen to God's message. Even if it comes from a prophet, many times they just won't listen to it. How are they going to listen to a young Hebrew boy who got himself in trouble and found himself in prison and now suddenly he's coming right over to the palace with a message that you need to pay attention to? Well, are we listening to God this morning? He may have a message for someone here. I trust a message of encouragement. Here comes the butler's revelation. About this time, the chief butler remembered something that had slipped his memory. But the reason he remembered it was this was the precise moment that God could use his memory to Joseph's greatest advantage. He remembered that a Hebrew fellow had interpreted his dreams in the prison and the dreams of the other guy the cupbearer, the uh, baker, and uh, both their interpretations had come true precisely even to the number of days involved in the interpretation. If somebody forgets to do something important that you ask them to do, don't worry too much about that. I don't mean a child that you're told to do something that he needs to learn to do. But I mean someone else, like the butler who's going back down to the palace, and uh, Joseph asks him to please remember him, but he forgets. But God did not forget. Now, what if the butler had come to the palace as soon as he was restored to his position, and what if he had told Pharaoh at that moment about what had happened? Do you think Pharaoh would have been impressed? Some foreigner in jail there 
who takes a wild guess on some dreams, and big deal. I don't think Pharaoh would have been impressed at all. I don't think he would have given Joseph the time of day at that time, much less get him out of prison. But now Pharaoh is all ears to hear about a guy that can interpret dreams. That's the way God does it. Providence is all about timing. So do you think God had to block the butler's memory banks to keep him from telling the dream before everything was ready? No, I don't think so. I think God just relied on human nature because about nine people out of ten never remember to offer gratitude or gratefulness once they have what they wanted. That's a biblical statistic. Do you remember the ten lepers who came to Christ to be healed? And he sent them to the priest, and they were healed, and one guy returned to thank Jesus, and he was a Samaritan fellow. So I think God is just saying, yeah, he's, he's probably going to forget. Just let him forget. God could have reminded him, but he's waiting right for the moment that it's going to do the most good for Joseph. Now, God never tempts anybody to be ungrateful. And He never tempts anybody to do evil. God is not tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But He takes their ingratitude or their transgression, and He uses that to accomplish His purposes. Now, we either believe that or we don't. If you do believe it, it's a very comforting doctrine in Scripture. There's some other things that accompany that. You've got to have a sovereign God who does what He pleases among men and among nations. But if you believe it, oh, it's a good thing. And you can see it all through Scripture. And you remember when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam uh, came to the power of the throne. And so the people came to him and said, hey, give us a break it's been pretty tough around here. All these taxes, constricted labor, building the temple, all that stuff. We just need a break. And his wise old dad's president's cabinet said the same thing to him, his dad's advisors. But the young man that he grew up with, about 40 years of age at that time, came to him and said, Hey, if you don't show these guys who's boss, man, they're going to try to take over the place. So the scripture says the king did not listen to the people. For it was a turn of events from the Lord, that he might establish his word, which the Lord spoke through Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Now that came sometime earlier. Jeroboam was walking outside of Jerusalem, and Ahijah said, hey, hey, come over here. And they stepped aside there, maybe under the shade of a tree. And Ahijah took off his new coat and tore it up into some pieces and gave Jeroboam ten pieces and said, the Lord is going to give you Ten tribes out of Israel. Be a good steward. I don't know what all he told him, but Jeroboam was not a good steward. But the turn of events happened not because God made Rehoboam do what he did. Rehoboam did that, made that decision out of his own greedy heart. But God used that to accomplish what he already said would happen. We could talk a lot about that, and sometime we probably will. But now let's go on to Pharaoh's notification. If you're ready to watch God take Joseph from the prison to the
to the palace. It's coming now, and about the length of time it takes you to shave and shower. The command was delivered to the chief jailer. And the command said, get the boy out of here and get him to the palace. There will be a chariot waiting, and we're ready to go right now. So Joseph quickly cleaned up, shaved, threw off the prison rags, and got him spruced up a little bit to get down to the palace because the Egyptians were very meticulous about cleanliness. And they didn't want some guy coming in in his prison garments. So Joseph has to get ready quickly because God is going to change his lot from being a prisoner to being prime minister before lunch is even served. And he jumps into the chariot and they take off down to the palace. And he goes in, maybe to the throne room, the Bible doesn't say, and I guess it would be a bunch of uh, stuffy-looking Egyptian uh, bureaucrats standing around and officials. I don't know who all was there. The servants were certainly there. But all eyes are focused now on this Hebrew lad who has just come from the jail. I'm sure everybody knew something of what was going on by that time. God in His providence likes to do things that way because then you can tell who's actually doing it. No red tape, no bureaucratic ramblings about getting any papers signed, no delays, just cut right through all the fluff and get it done right now. And that's the way God can do it. He doesn't always choose to do it that way, and that's when we have to exercise patience. But know that He can do it that way, and after many years of waiting... He does it that way for Joseph at this time. Now, notice in verse 16 that Joseph answers Pharaoh's request in such a way as to reflect on the providence of God. Verse 15 said, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. A meaning, an answer that will satisfy his curiosity as to what the dream uh, means. This was no ordinary dream. This was an oracle of God. So it was going to take God's man to be able to interpret it. So, in a very familiar passage, beginning in verse 17, Pharaoh rehearses the details of his dream. He was standing by the Nile and he saw seven pretty good-looking cows who were grazing on the marsh grass, marsh grass, and pretty soon some gaunt, lean, ugly cows came up out of the river and gobbled up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then he saw some ears of grain, seven ears, full and good. And then some ears that were withered and thin that gobbled up the seven good years. What could it mean? You would have thought those magicians could have guessed some things about that. But they didn't dare try because this was God's business. So finally we come to Joseph's interpretation and then his recommendation. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. This is the Lord speaking. And later the prophet Isaiah emphasizes who is doing the talking. 
I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity or adversity. I, the Lord, do all these things. So, Joseph gives Pharaoh God's interpretation. And you know the story well. We want to be sure children know this story well. This is a good one. The seven fat cows represent seven good years of abundant harvest that are coming, along with the seven good ears. But the seven lean cows that come and gobble them up and the withered ears represent seven years of famine that are coming after the seven years of abundant harvest. So notice that Joseph can not only interpret the dream, he could also tell you what to do about it. Because God had a little counsel for Pharaoh at this time. He could tell you why there were two dreams. It was because God had determined what would happen And it's going to happen quickly. So what God is going to do is fixed, and it is certain. If you have God's promises, you can take it to the bank, as they say. But remember about timing. It's going to be happening on God's time. Well, God um, speaks through Joseph to tell Pharaoh what to do about it. And he says, find a wise and discerning man who can take charge of gathering up a fifth of the produce during the good years to store up for the lean years. And now we have the unveiling of the next step of God's promise. I don't know what they had for breakfast that morning in the prison, but I can imagine what Joseph had for lunch that day and every day thereafter. Because God says in the New Testament... If you're willing to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, in due time you will be exalted. We'll look at that verse again in just a moment. So he got there and Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man such as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there's no one as discerning and as wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Israel. Now why did Pharaoh know that Joseph was the man? That's a pretty big appointment just to come at the spur of the moment. He knew that the Spirit of God was with him, And he hadn't seen anyone lately around about the palace who was as wise and discerning as Joseph to be able to interpret the dream and tell you what to do about it. So it's obvious that God is speaking through Joseph because God wants him to be installed as the prime minister. Well, then you know what happened in verses 42 through 45. Uh, Joseph was given Pharaoh's signet ring by which he could stamp those clay tablets with the symbol of authority. He was given a fine linen garment, a gold necklace, and some nice transportation. He would be in the second chariot right behind the king. That must have been pretty nice 
transportation. And all of these things were status symbols in the land because God wanted Joseph to be identified as the main man now under Pharaoh. Also, he was given the daughter of a priest family. And I'm assuming that God knew that Joseph could probably win her over to the belief in Jehovah God, which the Bible doesn't say, but I think he probably did. And you remember his family uh, later on and their descendants went back and his two sons were two of the tribes there. He even got a new name. His Egyptian name was Zaphnath Paanea, which means God speaks and he lives. Then he had a son named Manasseh, which means making to forget. I wonder if he named him after the butler. I don't think he did. And then he had another son named Ephraim, which means fruitfulness or twice fruitful. All those hard years have faded into his memory now because Joseph realized that God uses the tough times to prepare us for what's coming in the future. And now Joseph has a pretty good life in the land. And he is exercising the authority that God has given him and given the honor and glory to God, even as he did before Pharaoh the first time he ever spoke up. It seems it would have been simple for him to say, yeah, I can interpret dreams. Tell me what you got here. And let's see what we can do for you. But no, he gives the credit to God. In both cases, uh, in Joseph uh, there and uh, Jesus too, uh, God exalts an humble servant to a higher place. That's the verse that we mentioned just a while ago, 1 Peter 5. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on them, on Him, because He cares for you. About 2,000 years later, another Joseph was set free from prison. The angel rolled the stone back from the tomb. You remember the comparison that we had made before. Uh, Jesus was loved by his father, as was Joseph. He was hated by his brothers. He was sold for some silver. He was pronounced dead, but then providence opened the door of the tomb. In Jesus' case, he was dead. Think about the amazing providence in the life of Christ. And we would say Joseph is a type of Christ. What's happening in Joseph's life points us to what's coming 2,000 years later in Christ's life. Consider what uh, some people call the silent years between Malachi and Matthew in the New Testament. God was not speaking in terms of inspired Scripture. I'm sure He was still speaking to people like Simeon and Anna and many others who had trust in Him. But it didn't look like anything was happening. But, oh, a lot was happening. God was getting ready, preparing everything for the precise time in history when His Messiah would be born. He'd been working on this, we are told, ever since before the foundation of the earth. Because this was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth. The fullness of time, Ephesians 1, 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. 
making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things unto Him, things in heaven and things on earth. The fullness of time, all of history was pointing toward this time when Christ would be born. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. And when the fullness of time came in the Old Testament, God sent forth Joseph. Mark 1.14, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now think about everything that God had prepared so that redemption in Christ and the spread of the gospel would be ready to go when Christ gets here. We'll run through these pretty quickly. The Pax Romana had secured peace in the empire. No, empire, no more tribal warfare going on. A vast network of roads and bridges made travel easier uh, throughout the empire. Naval power cleared the seas of pirates, facilitated travel and commerce by ship. Paul spent a lot of time on a ship, sailing from one place to another. Roman soldiers protected its citizens from robbery and rioting. What happened to the guy in the Good Samaritan story? Well, if he had been on the Ignatian Way, uh, probably that wouldn't happen, have happened to him on the way from Neapolis to Philippi. The rule of law brought order and stability to the society. Koine Greek became the common language throughout the world. It was the language of commerce, so everybody was speaking that. The Old Testament had been translated into the Greek language in the Septuagint. That was 150 years before Christ. That was completed. Antithetical thinking, classic logic, was the predominant system of thought of that day. That means you can have absolute truth in the Ten Commandments. If something is right and good, then its opposite is wrong and bad. We don't have that kind of thinking much in our culture today. We would have relativistic or continuum thinking. And with relativistic thinking, we can say the government can spend trillions of dollars more and yet save money at the same time. That's the way that we think now. But the Bible is based on this antithetical thinking. There was open religious participation for the masses of the people because the mystery cults, as well as emperor worship, had brought in the common man. Now, that doesn't mean that you could worship Christ. If you were worshiping Him alone, you'd be persecuted. But in the times of the Greeks and Romans, only the upper crust of society would be involved in worshiping the gods. Now, everybody can worship. And then finally, among the Jews, there was renewed interest in the Old Testament. It led to revival on one hand through John the Baptist. It led to Phariseeism on the other hand as they distorted what was given by God in the Old Testament. Now, don't be confused about life as we try to see what we can learn from all this. Many people think that if they can just avoid suffering and sorrow connected with the people, things, and circumstances of life, then they will be happy. So that becomes their quest in life. And if any suffering and sorrow does show up, as it usually does in the life of everyone, then they may be just devastated. 
and they may be so discouraged they become depressed and they just kind of give up. Well, don't be fooled by that way of thinking. If you learn to overcome difficulties and trust in the Lord with a good attitude, then you can truly be joyful, filled with gladness, rejoicing in Christ our Savior, and living a life that is productive, that is satisfying, and that is meaningful. So what do you do in the meantime while you're waiting for God's providence to unfold? A couple of suggestions. We can see this in the life of Christ. We see it in the life of Joseph. Give God the glory in everything. He should receive the glory, and we need to give it to Him. Christ did all the time. Exercise patience to wait on God and trust Him for His timing. Stay in the Scriptures. That will encourage you to wait on the Lord. Uh, In the Bible, you'll find uh, wait on the Lord. uh, Be of good courage. He will strengthen thine heart. You'll find wait on the Lord maybe, maybe three dozen times in there where it tells you about waiting on the Lord. It must be pretty important. Number three, be concerned about other people and do what you can to help them. Here two guys show up in the prison. Joseph asks them what's wrong and does what he can to help them even as Christ would do later. Overcome your desires and disappointments and serve God with a good attitude. You remember Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane? He had to overcome His desires. His desire would be not to go to the cross. But, not my will, but thy will be done. And to finally speak out the truth about God boldly before others. It might be the king, it might be Governor Pilate. I'd like to close with the words of a hymn. William Cowper was born in England in 1731. His life was one long battle with pain and discouragement. A lot of mental pain. When he was six years old, his mother died, and his dad sent him off to boarding school and pushed him into becoming a lawyer. And he missed his mother and father as a little boy. And he bailed out of being a lawyer when he was about 30 years of age. Uh, Finally, he met a young lady in his early 20s. He became engaged to her. But after a seven-year relationship, her dad broke it off. And he was probably right, because Cowper struggled with depression all his life. He was committed to the St. Albans Insane Asylum in England. And one day he saw a Bible sitting on a bench, and God used that scripture as he turned to the book of John, God used it to open his eyes to the grace of Christ Jesus. In 1767, something good happened in his life. He became friends with John Newton, the reformed slave trader who was a pastor. And together they wrote a book of hymns to be sung in their church. You know, amazing grace and glorious things of thee are spoken by John Newton. And then William Cowper wrote, there is a fountain filled with blood. And God moves in mysterious ways. And here's what the words of that hymn tell us. God moves in mysterious ways His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. 
The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. But God is His own interpreter, and He will make it plain. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer, and then uh, Paul Renfro is going to come and conduct our service of the Lord's Supper. And let's pray uh, during while I'm praying. Uh, let's pray that God would give us courage to wait on Him to see what He is going to do in His providential working in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, perhaps there's someone here today who has never entered into a relationship with You. And I would pray that uh, they might be able to see Your love and Your grace and Your mercy in the life of Joseph, in the life of Your Son. And I thank You, Lord Jesus, that You were willing to face the worst providence that anybody in history has ever faced dying for the sins of the world. So I pray that if there's someone in the sound of my voice who has never confessed their sin and their need for a Savior, that today might be the day. And for those of us, Lord, who know You, who are seeking to walk in Your ways, we thank You for this account of Your servant Joseph. We thank You for things that we have seen ever since he was a 17-year-old boy. And we thank you, Lord, that we can now see the culmination of your plan and what you're doing to build this nation as you promised back to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob. And we thank you that through the nation came the Messiah, and the Messiah established his church. And Lord, we praise You that we are living now part of Your church that is international, that is local, that is non-political. And we thank You that this is for Gentiles as well as Jews. And it's for everyone. And we pray that we might be a part of that process, the means that You would use to take that message to those who have not heard even in our own places of work and neighborhoods and people that we know that really need the message. Lord, give us boldness that Joseph had and help us to have a concern about others. And we ask now that you would, through your Spirit, examine our hearts, see if there is any wrong thing there, any uh, attitude that would not be pleasing to you, or maybe something that we have done or said, and we ask, Lord, that uh, we might be able to recognize that and confess it so that we might be cleansed as we participate in this memorial service. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.